As the number of cath lab patients grows, so does the need to work smarter and faster. With the all new Philips Intrasight, you can. Experience a comprehensive suite of clinically proven imaging and physiology tools, including IFR co-registration, and go beyond the angiogram to further understand patient anatomy and disease. Learn more at philips.com backslash You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for November 2019. This is the podcast where I tell you about some of the top news on TCTMD in the weeks gone by, and usually let you listen in on some of the audio interviews our reporters did to pull together their stories. This month I'll do something slightly different. It's a format you may recognize from September, when I devoted the entire episode to a conversation with David Capitano, who walked me through some of the highlights of the ESC meeting in Paris. I'm going to go ahead and call this a new, regular feature for Heart Sounds. In a month that's brought us some big news from one of the major international cardiology meetings, I'll try to chase down someone in the know to sum up the meeting highlights. Last week, I convinced Robert Harrington of Stanford University and the newly minted American Heart Association president to recap the AHA scientific sessions. I caught up with him just a few days after returning from AHA. Have a listen. So hello, Dr. Harrington. Thanks so much for doing this with me. We don't do this that often on the Heart Sounds podcast, but it's a great way to recap some of these big meetings. I hope you've got some rest. I got home on Tuesday, had clinic uh, all morning into this afternoon, and uh, not much time to rest, but I'm delighted to join you. Okay. Well, thanks so much. It was an incredible meeting. I I don't think I've been at an AHA like that in years, so congratulations to you and and the program coordinators for putting on such a great spectacle, really. It was really, I thought, a a fun meeting. uh, You know, for me, it was a very special meeting. Uh, First time I've ever had my entire family at the meeting, which was a different sort of... uh, thing but it was that was exciting i do think that the city of philadelphia really outdid themselves for the meeting i don't know if you noticed at night many buildings lit up red really as a celebration of uh of heart health and all the things that aha is trying to do uh and i would be remiss if i didn't thank and congratulate donald lloyd jones and manesh patel as being the chairs of the program and really doing a spectacular job i also thought the convention center was a pretty neat place where, you know, restored train station. And, yeah, uh, worked well. I liked it. I don't know if I stayed up late enough to see that the buildings turned red, but I did watch the camera cut to your family during the presidential address, and I got kind of messed it up watching that, and I think you did too, if I'm not mistaken. I, I did. You know, you practice these things, and you practice them in a room of, uh, of your, you know, your colleagues. And, you're not, you know, when I was on stage actually giving the presentation, and I was talking about some very personal things. I couldn't see the audience because it's dark uh, in the audience and it's you know, so bright from the stage. And then when they lit up on my family, my wife and daughters, it was a bit emotional and I was glad that, uh, that they were sitting there, but it also made me reflect really quickly on a lot of things. So it was a moment I won't forget. Yeah, well, I actually wanna come back to that, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't start with the ischemia trial. 
This was the trial that so many people were excited to see at AHA. Uh, there was so much discussion leading up to it. They finally got the results. It was a, a full late breaker devoted towards ischemia and ischemia CKD. And now, of course, Twitter and everyone else is picking over the details and trying to make sense of it. But for you, what will these results mean and how quickly will they have an impact, if at all, in clinical practice? So just in the way of disclosure, Shelley, I was uh, on the executive committee of the trial. In fact, the trial's been going on long enough that when I was at Duke, I was the PI along with Sean O'Brien as the PIs of the Data and Statistical Coordinating Center. So I've been involved with this for a long time. When I moved to Stanford, obviously the data center stayed at Duke, but I've stayed engaged with the trial. So I'm seeing it from the vantage point of an investigator, one of the leaders of the trial. Having said that, I think that the ischemia investigators led by Judy Hockman and David Marin did a really nice job rolling out the results. And I do think that there are practice-changing or practice-altering implications here. The, the most important thing for me is that it really provides us data as clinicians to have data-driven conversations with our patients about what their values and preferences are in terms of uh, managing them with stable ischemic heart disease with varying amounts of ischemia on functional testing. Um, You know, I went into the ischemia trial with the hypothesis slash bias that there would be an increasing benefit of revascularization with a higher burden of vascular disease, meaning, you know, three versus two versus one vessel disease. A lot of people thought that, that, I think. Yeah. That, that did not turn out to be true. And so I think that that's a, uh, a big thing that we're going to have to think differently about in practice. There was, there was no relationship with burden of ischemia right. and, uh, and revascularization. Another area where I had a bias that if there were more ischemia, there may be um, more benefit with revascularization. I'm not shocked that the symptoms predominated as uh, as the effect of revascularization in this population. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I often say that when you consider a medical therapy, you have to ask yourself, are people going to live longer, feel better, or avoid unpleasant experiences? In this case, the real issue is that if they have persistent symptoms despite aggressive medical therapy, um, there's a good likelihood they're going to feel better with revascularization. And so you can have that conversation with patients. To me, there are two tricky issues that really need to be sorted out. One of which is, do we have to do some sort of anatomic assessment, i.e., uh, cardiac CT, for example, as was done in the trial, to pick out the left main patients, right. uh, to pick out the non-obstructives, because that's what we did in the trial, and, I, and I'm still grappling with that one myself. Yeah, Pam Douglas, I interviewed her for my story, and that's one of the things she said, that if people accept the results of this, that you don't need to hasten to the cath lab to get an angio in some of these folks, you can't be comfortable with that decision unless you have ruled out left main or, or comparable disease. Um, many CT folks I've spoken to see this as a big win for CT, even though it wasn't actually part of the study questions. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go back to when we were first planning the study, we had some very, I'll call them heated debates amongst investigators as to whether or not we wanted to have the CT piece in there. I I actually argued against it and said that 
what's going to happen if whatever the trial finds, we're going to have to deal with the fact that we did a CT first. And is that what we're going to want to do? And others said, look, there's just no way you can't take the left main patients out of this. And I didn't agree with that then, but now we're sort of stuck with what do we do? That's an issue that I think we still have to think about. But here's another interesting issue. If, If ischemia, the amount of ischemia is not helping in terms of directing therapy, is this going to diminish ischemia testing? So I was asked that question by somebody at AHA, and I said, you know, I use, as a clinician, I use the exercise portion of the test for a lot of other information. How long did they go? What kind of workload did they achieve? Did their blood pressure go up when they exercised? You know, a lot of the physiologic response to exercise can be really helpful in terms of adjusting medications, et cetera. Planning exercise programs, someone said to me, just to understand what yeah. Yeah, I, I do that all the time. You give people an exercise prescription based on you know what they're able to do. Mm. But the question then becomes, maybe we don't need the imaging that's attached to the ETT. If it's not providing you any actionable information, maybe we ought not to do it. Maybe we should do more and more um, old-fashioned exercise testing to get the physiologic parameters, but recognizing you don't necessarily need the imaging piece. So those are the kind of questions I think we're, the, the investigators are going to grapple with, and then I think ultimately guideline writers will uh, grapple with. But I do think that these will be the kind of data that the guideline writers are, you know, are really going to have to help us interpret for how to apply in practice. What do you make of this discussion over the periprocedural MIs versus the spontaneous MIs and whether, you know, they canceled each other out in terms of total MIs in the trial, but it is being sort of bandied about that longer follow-up perhaps might tilt it more in the direction of the invasive strategy or that somehow these weren't measured in the best possible way to get the best answer for patients. Any concerns there? It's an important set of questions. You know, there's uh, we've known for a long time in these invasive versus conservative therapy trials that there's this issue of uh, the early hazard associated with the procedure. In this case, the early heart hazard is largely made up of periprocedural MIs. And can you trade off the early procedural MIs against the later non-procedural MIs? You know, an important observation was that there's absolutely no trade-off in mortality. So it's not as though you can say, well, small MIs happen first, bigger MIs happen later with a favorability towards the invasive arm. That's going to translate into a mortality effect. It doesn't look that way so far. You know, certainly I will be supportive of longer follow-up to see if something else emerges, but I don't think you can conclude that quite with the data we have. I do know that David and Judy and others are very interested in trying to understand the MI trade-off balance, and uh, more work has to be done, the kind of MIs early on, the kind of MIs later on. As you know, you might have known and listened to me over the years, I've never been quite as willing to poopa the importance of uh, early myocardial infarction after revascularization procedures like some of my colleagues. The last thing I want to ask you about here, though, of course, is that it was a, a secondary health outcomes endpoint that was positive. The invasive strategy did better on, and yet this wasn't a sham control trial. How much faith can we put in that endpoint given that patients knew that they had undergone revascularization? So how comfortable can we feel that this is a real effect? 
Yeah, so it's a uh, important question, and I think that you know certainly the 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 best piece of evidence would be in the setting of a sham control trial. But I would say a couple of things. Um, one of which is that there were multiple domains of uh, quality of life, including relief from angina. Um, that were consistent. Number two, that there was no attenuation of the effect over time. Um, in, a, in a lot of the trials, you see an early attenuation. You see an early um, Spike, quality of yeah. life benefit, early center benefit. But you know that that the, the effect of that dissipates over time. You don't see any of that of, of that attenuation over time here, which I think goes along with it being a stronger, more real effect. I take the criticism that it's not a sham control, that it's, that's not ideal. Um, and I, I, I would accept that as a, as, a, as a criticism. Well, we could certainly talk about ischemia for a full hour, but I know you don't have time for that. So I'll ask you briefly, there were a lot of other late breakers that I, I thought were very interesting in this year's program and had ischemia not stolen the limelight. I think several others would have um, really got people talking and indeed did get people talking. You know, people can go and find the results on tctmd.com, but um, any that you want to particularly point to as highlights of this year's meeting? Yeah, I thought that there were some really interesting things at the meeting. Uh, the findings with uh, the observational findings with uh, Impella, I thought were important and um, and interesting. Largely pointing out the fact that you can't make an assumption because something physiologically seems to make sense that in fact it does work or it does improve patient outcomes, and it really calls into question as to whether or not in uh, these sick patients with shock who you want to use ventricular support devices in, you know, randomization is still the ultimate test for whether or not something really adds value. And I think the impeller results are consistent with that statement. So I thought that that was worth seeing. The DAPA heart failure, um, now looking at the group of patients treated with the SGL2 inhibitor with heart failure, but without diabetes. Wow. You know, the data are consistent with the overall study of DAPA offering benefit in a group of patients with diabetes, but now we have a drug designed for use to lower glucose, improving outcomes in heart failure patients without diabetes. Really important observation, and I think um, that's potentially practice changing as we think about the kind of treatment strategies that we should be offering our patients with heart failure. I think the next big issue in heart failure is going to be how do you think about the various combinations of all these therapies? Right. Do we just add them to everybody? What do you start Are with? There, yeah, what do you start with? How do you sequence them? Are there some combinations for some people that are better than others? So I think the heart failure community has some work to do to uh, try to help us sort this out. But I found the SGL2 inhibitor trial a pretty important piece of information. And then something I've followed for a while, the, uh, the Orion studies. Okay, in glycerin. Um, I'm not if I'm saying it yeah, properly. Yeah, glycerin. Okay. You know, new therapeutics, iRNA. So, you know, great, great opportunity to lower PCSK9 via a different mechanism, not an antibody in this case, but with um, interference RNA. And really raising the question of can we change the care paradigm for lowering LDL cholesterol? Could you imagine giving someone an injection once or twice a year yeah. And having reliably sustained LDL. 
And so, you know, the, the, the obvious question is, do you have enough clinical outcome data yet? And that's a legitimate question. And I know that the Orion study group is uh, working on the larger trial. And certainly I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome trial. But I would say, Shelley, that this mechanism of PCSK9 inhibition has now been demonstrated in several large trials as being a, what I'll call a validated target. Yes, this is a different way of getting at it, but it's still PCSK9 inhibition. So would I switch wholesale right now um, in terms of PCSK9 inhibition? No, I wouldn't. But um, I think it's incredibly exciting for the future and potentially could be care paradigm changing. Uh, by being able to give an injection once or twice a year. Certainly patients would love that, wouldn't they? Patients, I think patients would like it. I think the health system would like it. As I understand it, the cost of goods here are certainly far, far less than the cost of goods with the, uh, with the antibody technology. And so just the cost issues are, uh, which has been the huge limitation in terms of the uptake of the PCSK9 inhibitors, seems like it ought to be able to be managed here. I keep hearing that, but I'm just waiting to see them come out with the price tag and have it be that much cheaper. Well, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, the conversations that I've had sort of behind the scenes to just ask the question, you know, tell me the cost of goods relative to cost of goods for antibodies, and I'm told it's a fraction of the cost. Okay. Now, how somebody ultimately prices that is a different story, but I think... You know, if the chance is to really redefine care, hopefully the clinical community, including people who know a lot about health economics, can be involved in some of those discussions. Okay, let me go back to your family sitting in the audience, because we kind of left that hanging. But part of your presidential address, um, a key focus of it, was the moments you spent discussing the importance of diversity in cardiology. It produced an incredible reaction in the audience at the time, and then on social media afterwards. But why did you want to spend some of your moment in the limelight there talking about the issue of diversity in, in medicine generally and cardiology specifically? Well, well, thank you for asking. And um as you begin to put together, this is a presentation unlike any that I've ever given. You've known me a long time. I'm a very data-driven, um, stick-to-the-facts sort of speaker. Uh, I like talking about clinical trials. I like talking about analyses. And I don't like a whole lot talking about myself. Um, what you're asked to do when you give this particular speech at the AHA is to Share some of your personal story so that people can understand how you might have done what you do. Share some of the things that are important to you. Wrap that around where you see the world going in terms of cardiovascular, in my case, cardiovascular research and medicine. And then frame it in the context of some of the things the AHA is doing. Okay, well, that <laughs> no, seems like no, no, you know, you no, know, no task. easy task. Yeah. And, um, and I spent many months working on this, and I really first spent time thinking about what was important to me professionally. And so it's not surprising, um, I really focused on the importance of data and evidence, uh, and evidence being used to gather practice. And I linked that to a lot of the things that I've done in the past, and then I've also linked that to the things that I see as being um, facilitatory with evidence generation and evidence collection in the future. So that piece sort of seemed to fit. Sure. And then as I um, 
began thinking about some of the other topics that are important to me, a topic that I've gotten very engaged with over the last several years through both AHA and ACC has been the diversity in the workforce issues. Um, and, uh, and I've been increasingly vocal um, on that, both in terms of my speaking roles as well as my writing roles, but also in terms of things that, uh, that I have been that, that I'm doing on the, the local front and within my department, and particularly around uh, equity and compensation, for example, for, for our department faculty. And as I've gotten more involved in this, I thought, look, I've got the bully pulpit slash the platform. Exactly. I need to use it. Um, and as I began to talk about my own, my own story to try to frame it up, I thought that there are two aspects of my own story that the audience might find useful in terms of why I care about this, one of which is that, as I mentioned, I'm a first-generation college student, and I think that that's an important message for people in the audience who are first-generation students of any type to see that the president of the HA can have been a first-generation college student. I don't come from a life of privilege. And um, And you said it wasn't just in your family, it was in your community. Correct. I Mm -hmm. came from a very, very... uh, uh, you know, blue collar community. And then the second piece is that the women in cardiology issue, I think is, um, is a critically important one for the future of the specialty that I've gotten involved with. And I thought it was an opportunity to frame it. And certainly as people have asked me that my personal story has absolutely influenced how I think about this. I, as you heard, you know, I was raised by a single mother. I have a sister, I have four daughters, I have a professional um, spouse, and all of that influences me in terms of how I think about um, the, the roles that women have access to, the, the positions of influence and power that they might have access to, the opportunities they might have access to. So I wanted to use it for the moment. And when I was talking about that from the stage, I didn't know where my family was sitting because the last time I had seen them was behind stage. And right. so when I got to that point about my family, my mother, my background, um, which are not things I usually talk about, um, the lights went on and I saw my daughters and my wife and it was just a, uh, for me it was a very emotional moment and uh, uh, I was appreciative of the fact that the audience clapped because it gave me a moment to, to regroup. Yeah, fair and, enough. Uh, I, I won't forget it. Yeah. Well, as a woman who's worked on the periphery of this field for many years now, it was great to hear you. It always has been. You've championed this cause for a long time, and it was um, great to see you doing it from that vantage point, for sure. I feel like I could keep you on the phone for at least 20 more minutes, but I'm not going to do that to you. You deserve as much free time as you can get now. But thank you so much for talking about some of this with me, and I'm sure we'll be talking about many of these things again in the weeks and months and years to come. Shelley, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for the November edition of Heart Sounds. I think it's pretty clear I could have kept Bob Harrington on the phone for a lot longer than I did. Please do check out TCTMD's print coverage to get more details on ischemia and ischemia CKD, new insights from DAPA-HF with dapagliflozin, and those two impella analyses hinting at higher adverse cardiovascular event rates with these devices. We got a wide range of reactions in all of our news coverage, and that perspective should help flesh out your understanding of these important studies. 
Of course, there were many more interesting topics and results unveiled at AHA this year that we didn't get to talk about on the podcast. I'd highlight Colcott, showing that the anti-inflammatory gout drug, colchicine, cut the risk of CV events in patients who'd had a prior MI. There's also some fascinating, albeit observational data, comparing self-expanding versus balloon-expandable TAVR devices, as well as the full Galileo results, confirming that rivaroxaban was associated with an increased risk of death following successful transcatheter valve implantation compared with antiplatelet therapy alone. And there's much, much more. Please find your way to the AHA conference page on TCTMD to get all of those important stories. Don't forget, TCTMD also covered three other meetings in November. These were the Viva meeting in Las Vegas, PCR London Valves, and VEATH in New York City. Americans heading into the Thanksgiving weekend will have plenty of reading material on those long flights home, or if you're looking for a way to escape your in-laws. Thanks so much for tuning into Heart Sounds. See you back here next month. Love listening to Heart Sounds? Be sure to check out additional podcast series from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Mike Gibson and Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxana Moran. These episodes are available on SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes.